Good morning. It's great to be with you. Um, my name is Bryce. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC, and um, we're uh, continuing our series through Revelation 2 and 3, so I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 2. Uh, we're looking at the last uh, section of Revelation 2, where Jesus um, speaks to the church in Thyatira, which uh, I think is the most fun of the names to say, all of the... The churches that he writes to, Thyatira, we could just say that together for a little bit. Um, but let me invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word. If you're following with me in one of the church Bibles, you can find, uh, uh, follow along on page 1029. Yep. Yep. And uh, we'll start reading at verse 18. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God... <coughs> who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a, pro- who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod, as when, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father." And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. God, uh, these uh, may strike us as as sobering words, and surely they are that. Would you help us to uh, hear clearly what you are saying to your people today? That we might... um, not be ashamed, but might know our sin and repent of it. God, would you encourage us with the message that Jesus uh, has renewed all things and is renewing all things, we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, I have a friend uh, named Matthew, who I've gotten to know over the last couple of years. Matthew is the owner of a coffee shop that I spend a lot of time at, and uh, Matthew is a huge music fan. Um, I guess he used to work in the, in the music industry, and uh, he doesn't anymore, but he's always talking to me about uh, this, this new band that he's discovered, or uh, these classic bands that he loves that, uh, you know, like I remember the names, but maybe I'm too young to actually know any of their music, but I'm always just kind of trying to pretend like I know what he's talking about. <laughs> And um, one of the great things about Matthew is that he, uh, he goes to concerts all the time. Like, I, I don't know, I mean, it seems like he goes to concerts like two or three times a week. Um, 
Sometimes he'll go see, I, he told me a couple weeks ago he saw Kiss in San Diego, and then like two nights later he saw him again in L.A. Um, and he's so excited every single time. He goes uh, and sees a concert, and the thing I love about Matthew is, um, you know, every single time he, he, he tell, he's got to tell me like how great this experience was and, and how it was just the most uh, epic concert he's ever seen. And, and it's like he's, he's wanting, and I'm just sitting there going like, I think I know a couple Kiss songs. I might be able to identify them. Um, but he's got to share what he's experienced and he's got to kind of help me imagine what it was like to be there and understand just how significant and how important it felt like it was to be there. I think there's something uh, really cool about that because there's something about, um, about the experience of beauty um, that makes us feel like we're connected to something transcendent, something significant, something that matters. Uh, and when that happens, when we have an experience of something beautiful, something momentous, something that feels important, a couple things happen. One is that we have to tell somebody about it. Uh, we have to tell somebody about it, but we also have this sense that it has to change us. When we see beauty, whether it's in um, you know, the aesthetic beauty of a, of a great concert, or it's in a beautiful view, or um, I mean, you know, even if it's just reading the great line from, a great line in a book, uh, you have to share it with somebody because there's this sense that this matters. It's, it's about something, and, and therefore it's, it's significant, and it changes us. This morning we are continuing our series um, where we're looking at the seven letters of Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3. He speaks to seven different uh, churches and seven cities um, in Asia Minor at the end of the first century. And this is all a part of what we're doing really this year at Resurrection OC, looking at how the beauty of God compels us to follow him. And uh, the glory of God compels us to trust him. And so today, as we look at this uh, letter to the church in Thyatira, I want to start by kind of bringing to the surface maybe something that's latent in, in a lot of what we've been looking at so far this year. Um, and uh, what we've been seeing this year, and it's, it's really simple. And what I want you to see is this, that beauty changes us. Beauty changes us. Um, I remember years ago going to see U2, my favorite band, live in concert. And there was a lot of anticipation because we had tickets. And then Bono injured his back and they canceled the show. And then a year later they rescheduled. So we had been anticipating the show for like kind of 18 months. And it was beautiful and it was incredible. And I remember leaving and feeling like I had to tell everybody how great it was. And they were all, look, my friends are looking at me like you're looking at me now, going like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm like, but you don't get it. This means something. It, beauty has to change us. Um, the experience of beauty makes us feel like we're caught up in something significant and important, and it changes us. And it's true of a concert or fleeting moments of beauty, and, and, if, and if it's true of just the kind of fleeting experience of beauty, of beauty how much more is it the case that experiencing the beauty of who God is, the one who's the source of life and the sustainer of everything that exists, how much more does glimpsing his glory, his beauty, transform us? It's a simple concept. Beauty changes us. It's easy to say that, and yet it's really profound, and I think it's incredibly good news, um, especially at the time that we live in, 
because I don't think we really believe that change is possible. I mean, as a culture, we live in a time. Well, let me let me say it like this. Um, the story of the Bible is essentially the story of the human race as it really is in God's interaction with the human race. And so the, the story of the Bible, uh, people have said, is told in four acts. That in the beginning, in the first act, we have the story of creation, where God creates a world that is very good, and Adam and Eve uh, live in that world. And yet uh, the first act ends very quickly. And uh, act two begins with uh, the human race rebelling against God, and the result is that uh, human beings and the entire creation is plunged into sin and uh, decay enters the world um, and brokenness. And we all know that very well. And then in Act 3, uh, God comes into the world. God enters into his creation, the world that he made in Jesus Christ in order to redeem it, in order to heal what is broken, in order to banish shame, to heal hurts. Um, and then, uh, and, and to take what is broken and fix it, he he redeems it. He doesn't he doesn't wipe it out and start over again. Um, nor does he simply just like ignore the problem, but he actually takes what's broken and fixes it. Redemption, restoration. And then in Act Four, which is what we still await, uh, God returns. Jesus returns to glorify the world, and then and only then will. Um, his work of redemption be complete. Then suffering will be banished finally and completely. And so here's the problem. We live in a culture that doesn't believe in Act 3. Uh, and that's the act <laughs> that all of our lives, in which all of our lives take place. We live in a culture that does not really believe in redemption. I, I heard somebody say this um, a week or two ago, and I thought this was really profound and accurate. We don't believe in redemption. Either we say, uh, this is the way that the world is, and therefore it's good and it's right, just as it is. And so if you have desires or inclinations that feel natural to you, they must be right, and you should go and just follow your passions. Um, which is sort of an over-realized view of, 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 of um, Act 1. Like, the world was never broken. Whatever it is, is right. And who is anybody to say anything different? Or... Um, the second alternative is, as a culture, we dig up dirt on people. And so and we've seen this over and over again, haven't we, and, you know, especially in politics recently. But uh, you find somebody that's, uh, something that somebody did 30 years ago, and you use it to sort of crucify them in the present, as if, like, nobody else has ever said something stupid in college that they don't really believe anymore. Um, so the idea, it, it, this is, is sort of, we're living in this act two where everything is fallen, everything is broken, redemption is not possible, change is not possible. Or I think the third alternative as a culture is we listen to people like Elon Musk and others who say that like technology is going to fix everything next year. And, um, or maybe in 10 years or when he gets us all to Mars, whatever it is. But like there's this inevitability when you talk about people in, in certain sectors of the technology world where it's, there's this inevitability that someday soon suffering will be gone because we will have fixed it all. But the tragedy of all of these views, and they all I think have a kernel maybe of truth in them, but the tragedy of all of them is that there's no good news in any of it. There's no good news at all. Um, there, it's living in a world where um, we don't believe change is truly possible, that we don't believe that redemption is really a real thing. 
But we are living in Act 3. We live in the age of redemption. According to the Bible, yes, our world is profoundly messed up. It's profoundly broken. Um, but God has come into our world in Jesus. And uh, through the cross, he has paid for our sin. And uh, in the resurrection, there is a now a new power that is at work in the world and in our lives to set us free from sin, to banish shame, to cover our hurt, and to renew this world. And that means that what is done, what has been done, doesn't have to be. Uh, and my sinful desires do not have to define me. Beauty can actually change us. That's what it means to believe that redemption is real. You don't have to ignore your past. You don't have to be ashamed of your past. You don't have to um, live like you were simply stuck in your past. You don't have to live with this naive view of the future that everything's about to get way better. You can actually believe that change is possible because redemption is real. God is at work in the world. So that's the background. And so Jesus uh, speaks to this church in Thyatira in Revelation 2, and he calls, uh, or rather through them, he's also speaking to us, uh, these seven churches that he addresses is this kind of message of, of Jesus speaking to the complete church, the whole church. So he's, he's speaking to us through them. And, um, and he says to them that beauty changes us, that redemption is possible. And um, here's how we see this. He says to this church, he says, I love you. Like most of the churches that he addresses, uh, I think maybe all but one, Jesus has both positive and negative to say. Um, about the church. He says, I love you. You're doing great work. You are known for works of love and faithfulness and service. And he says, your latter works exceeded your first. So he said, you're getting better. You're doing this even better. Than, like you were great at the start and you're getting better and better. And I love that about you. Uh, but he says, there's also a problem. Um, this has got to change. You've got to repent. And it's this both and thing. It's not an either or. And so much of the time we live in this world that says, well, it's either good the way it is or it needs to drastically change. And Jesus says, no, it's, it's, it's both. Redemption is what we need here. Redemption is what we need. Jesus says, I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. And so he's saying you're doing better and better. But he also rebukes them and says, but you tolerate sin. And that's essentially um, the, the, you know, the, the rebuke that Jesus offers this church. He says uh, there's this woman, Jezebel, who probably wasn't actually a woman named Jezebel in this church, but it's a reference to um, the evil queen Jezebel in the Old Testament who married King Ahab. And, um, but but there, it's this teaching. Uh, she's te- there's this teaching that has arisen in the church um, that has essentially justified compromise. And Jesus says that cannot be in my church. We cannot tolerate sin. This is really important to understand what he's getting at here because Jesus is not saying you are not welcome in my church if you sin. Uh, Because everybody sins. There are no perfect people, uh, I guess allowed, and it doesn't even matter if they're allowed in the church because there are no perfect people except for Jesus. And so Jesus is not in any way saying uh, you're not welcome if you sin. Uh, But what Jesus rebukes is not that there are people in the church that sin, but that the church wasn't dealing with it. Uh, And so to believe in redemption is to say something like, I love you, and because I love you, I want better things for you. I think that there's something that every parent understands about that, right? Like, I love you. Please do something different than what you're doing. 
now. It's stop hurting yourself. Stop hurting us. This is not good. I love you because I love you. You've got to change. You've got to change. Every person sins. Every church is full of people who sin. There's no surprise. There's no shame in any of that. But what Jesus is saying is that the church is a place uh, for sinners uh, to be redeemed. To be redeemed. To change. This is a place where we long to see changed lives. Or to say that another way is to say it like this. What Jesus is saying to the church in Thyatira and to us in Revelation 2 is, I don't expect you to be perfect, but I'm calling you to be faithful. I don't expect you to be perfect, but I'm calling you to be faithful. Uh, Thyatira, of these seven churches in these seven cities that Jesus addresses in Revelation 2 and 3, is uh, probably the least, uh, the the one we know the least about. And so... uh, Several commentaries I read, scholars say that this is the most difficult of the seven letters to understand just because we don't understand that much about the city of Thyatira and what was going on there. But we do know a little bit. We know that Thyatira was probably the least prominent of these seven cities that Jesus talks to, talks about or addresses. It wasn't a capital. It wasn't a cultural hub. Uh, it wasn't like a cool place. Nobody probably wanted to move to Thyatira. Uh, it was a place there. Um, archaeological evidence has shown it was a center of of, um, of like a, it was probably a working class city. Has to, to we'll say like that. There were there were, the city was dominated by guilds. There were guilds that made uh, that like for wool workers and linen workers uh, and carpenters and masons and uh, and silversmiths and bronze smiths. Um, you know, it's a, <laughs> it's a pl- it's one of those middle parts of the country where, like, we couldn't do our life in Orange County without them, but nobody really wants to move there. It's not a it's not a cool place, but we're glad that they are doing their thing over there. Um, it's like Akron, Ohio. Like, I, where exactly? But they probably make good stuff that we wouldn't live with there. Um, sorry if you're from Akron, no. Um, what else? It was known for its trade guilds, potters, bakers, shoemakers, metalsmiths. And each of the, this is a significant thing, each of the, um, each of these trades had a guild, um, you know, like a union or like a professional, um, I don't know, like the bar association. You can't practice law without being certified by the, by the bar association. You can't practice medicine or nursing without... Um, you know, uh, meeting the approval of the boards that oversee those, those professions. And what this meant was that it was nearly impossible to work in Thyatira without being a member of one of these guilds. And so um, if you didn't join a guild, you faced financial ruin, and yet joining a guild was a major moral dilemma for Christians uh, because participating, uh, membership in the guild required participation in the social <laughs> life of the guild. And so the life of the guild uh, would, would involve, and this is a pagan society in which everything is, is religious and everything is deeply pagan. Um, so there would be regular meetings of the guilds that would begin with an offering to the gods and where, where uh, drinks would be poured out and, and drunk for you know, the, the worship of false gods. And, uh, and even in some cases, um, temple prostitution was... <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy to think about this in the world that we live in, but this was part of your job, really. 
um, if, you were, if you were involved in this guild, there were certain expectations that were placed on you. Uh, and so you can feel the tension that Christians were under in this society. And I think that we have to say that, that you know, that, that resonates with us, uh, at least to a certain degree, doesn't it? Um, you know, I, I remember fr- a friend in college talking about, um, and, you know, as a Christian, just do I join a, a fraternity on campus or not? Um, and he, I remember he, this guy saying, like, he was going to redeem this fraternity for Jesus, and then it just got to the point where he realized he just could not in good faith participate. Um, there, are, there, are many, um, there are many places uh, in our work environments now where we're going to feel that pressure, that squeeze to compromise. And so with that background, this is the reality of like life in Thyatira. You couldn't make a living without being a member of the guild, and yet uh, membership in the guild almost inevitably forced you to compromise um, Christian convictions. You can see the, the pressure uh, that was squeezing the church in Thyatira. So Jesus says, I see your works and your deeds and your external appearances, and it's all great but you have allowed a theology to develop in your midst that justifies compromise. Okay, not just that you are compromising, but you've actually allowed a sort of pseudo-biblical teaching that justifies compromise. And Jesus says it cannot be that way. Jesus says to believers in Thyatira, and he says to us, I know that you're not perfect, but I'm calling you to be faithful. Uh, God is not in the business of compromise. He's in the business of redemption. He's in the business of changing, fixing what is broken. And so the place of the church is for sinners to gather uh, on Sundays and yet in, in, in other contexts throughout the week uh, to remind ourselves of the story of what God is doing, that God is redeeming sinners, that God's redeeming love for sinners is real. And as we tell that story, that is the beauty that actually transforms us and changes us, and that's how we experience redemption. So Jesus is saying, keep up your good works of love and service and do not compromise when you're squeezed by the world around you. So that is basically the message of, uh, of, of this letter to the church in Thyatira. Um, but let me just kind of leave you with three uh, takeaways when, um, that, that will help us as we think about, okay, If the message is, do not compromise my faith in Jesus, when the world around me squeezes me in certain ways, how do I actually do that? So three takeaways. The first thing we see in this passage uh, is this, that Jesus is what you are looking for. Jesus is what you are truly looking for. Um, And we've seen this in, in all seven of these letters that Jesus writes to the churches, that uh, he, he begins by identifying himself. And he always identifies himself in a way that is relevant to the particular needs and challenges of the church and the city that he's addressing. So um, in verse 18, he says, uh, These are the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are burnished bronze. So you can see with maybe a little more understanding of the background of Thyatira, how Jesus is... Uh, describing himself in a way that would have had relevance for the believers in this city. When he says that I'm the one who has the feet of burnished bronze, um, Thyatira was dominated by like the, the metal industry, and it, it, it's, it's, scholars have discovered that Thyatira had a, like a, 
a special process, a secret recipe for making bronze. And Jesus says, I'm the one, I'm the one whose, whose feet are solid, uh, like burnished bronze. Uh, and then also in Thyatira, um, Thyatira was a center for the worship of Apollo. Apollo is the Roman name, you know, the, the Roman name for one of the, the Roman pantheon, the gods of the Roman pantheon, whose Greek name was Helios. And Helios is the god of the sun. And Jesus says, I'm the one whose eyes, I have eyes that are like a flame of fire. So to look at Jesus, he's saying, is, is to be like, is to, be, to look at Jesus is like looking into the sun itself. Uh, to be looking into the face of the creator of the sun whose face shines with its radiance, with the radiance and glory of the sun. And then we also know that um, Domitian, uh, Domitian was the Roman emperor um, in nine, until 96 AD. He was assassinated in September of 96 AD, and uh, it's believed that the, the book of Revelation was written in 96 AD. And um, Domitian, like many of the Roman emperors, claimed to be divine himself. Um, many of the Roman emperors claimed to be gods themselves, and Domitian's son was regularly known throughout the Roman Empire as the Son of God. And so Jesus says here, I am the Son of God. Now I know that that um, title is used elsewhere in the Bible, but it's, I, as, as far as I can tell, it's the only place that Jesus refers to himself, or Jesus is even referred to by anyone in the book of Revelation as the Son of God. And so it's a, it's a, it's a deliberate contrast with um, Domitian and his, um, and his son as these, these false gods. And so what's happening here is that Jesus is describing himself in ways that would have been particularly relevant for Christians living in Thyatira. And by doing so, what he is saying to them is you are longing for these certain things in life. You are longing for power, for influence, for uh, stability, and yet I am the one who possesses those things. Jesus is saying, I am the one that you are truly looking for. Um, and that's got to be tremendously encouraging for Christians living in a culture that squeezes them to live in ways that would, um, that would cause us to be unfaithful to our Savior. Uh, that's got to be tremendously encouraging for Christians in 96 AD or in 2019 living in a culture uh, that, that squeezes faithfulness out of us and makes faithfulness feel impossible. I mean, let's just be honest, most of us in our professional lives, in our work lives, will be faced with uh, situations where, where you'll be tempted to compromise, right? And, and, and maybe in really profound ways, maybe in you know, just something as simple as uh, bending the truth, um, uh, not reporting um, you know, gains or losses or errors or profits, and uh, Jesus is saying, I want you to be faithful. I want you to be faithful, even when it costs you, even when you feel the squeeze of your faithfulness. But it's not just simple moralism. Jesus never says, the Bible never calls us to be kind of obedient just for the sake of following the rules. Uh, Jesus says, when you're tempted to compromise, Jesus says, I am the success that you desire. And you already have me. And because you already are successful because you have me, you are not empty, you are not a sponge that needs to fill yourself with worldly success. 
If you are full, you don't need to lie, you don't need to compromise in order to be successful. You're already full, you already have success, therefore you don't need worldly success, therefore just be faithful. <laughs> just be faithful. Most of us have felt or will felt um, the struggle to remain faithful to the Bible's sexual ethic. Um, I, can't, I can't not talk about this when this passage talks about sexual immorality as often as it does. Um, we live in a culture that thinks that the Bible's teaching on sex is old-fashioned, silly, nobody really talks about it. Um, it's naive. Um, and so we may be younger, uh, you may be wanting to be married, and you're tempted to think, well, if I'm faithful to what the Bible says about sex, uh, like, I'll be alone my whole life, so I've got to compromise. Or you may be um, at a different point in life where you are tempted to, to not remain faithful to your spouse, whether that's through, um, you know, the allure of a, you know, another person or through images on a computer screen um, that promise to make you satisfied. And Jesus says, I see you with eyes that burn like fire. And I love you. Jesus is looking at us and saying, I know you. I have the eyes that pierce, you know, to the heart and soul. I know what's going on in your life and, and I love you. You are known and loved, therefore you don't need to find sexual satisfaction outside of the parameters that Jesus has placed on sex. And so I want you to remain sexually faithful. Over and over again, Jesus is saying, I am the true answer to your heart's longing. I am the one who provides what sin promises but never actually fulfills. That's the first takeaway, I think, from this passage. But the second is this. Um, it's never too late to repent. Okay, what, what is, what, I mean, what did, um, what is what I just said mean for us uh, when we discover that we are compromised? Does that make sense? And, and let me be clear, it's when we discover that we have compromised, not if we discover that we have compromised. Um, because all of us are sinners, that's not a surprise. No one's sin is so shocking that uh, to be found out you know, if your sin were to be found out that you would be um, unwanted here, or even more importantly, your sin is not so shocking that if found out, Jesus would turn his back on you. Uh, it is never too late to repent. Three times in this passage, Jesus uses the word repent. And what he's saying is that when we found ourselves in a position where we have compromised, where we have been, been, been unfaithful, we have to repent. To repent simply means to turn away. The Bible surfaces our sin not to make us feel bad, not to make us feel guilty, not to make us feel ashamed. Uh, the gospel casts out shame. The gospel is the antithesis of shame. And we, I think, live in this culture that says, oh, the Bible's out of date, but we don't really want to talk about it because it makes people feel bad. The reality is people feel bad. <laughs> people feel bad. Like, you don't need the Bible to tell you that you feel bad. You feel ashamed. You feel guilty. The Bible, the gospel message is that there is redemption. That, that Jesus has come to cast out our sin and our shame and to heal us. It's such good news. But if we live in ignorance of our sin, then, our, then we never feel the, the, the freedom that comes from repentance, from walking away from it. 
To repent is simply to say, I'm sorry, uh, but it's more than simply saying, I'm sorry. It's, it's, it's turning our back on our sin and walking away from it. This passage talks about sexual immorality, and um, sometimes I think people wonder, like, why is the Bible so obsessed with sex? <laughs> like, why is everybody so obsessed with sex? <laughs> you know? um, no cult has ever, like, arisen that says, um, you know, we just don't believe what the Bible says about gossip. You know, it's always about sex, right? Um, we just think that we should be allowed to tell lies whenever we want. Uh, no, like, we all, every, even, you know, our secular culture says, yeah, you should tell the truth. Um, you shouldn't gossip about people. Um, it's always about sex. And the Bible surfaces that in order to heal us. A few months back in the fall, I, I, I preached a sermon, or I think we did a, a sermon series, on what the Bible says about sex and singleness and marriage and sexuality. And I remember um, kind of leaving uh, one of those sermons feeling vulnerable about um, you know, what I just said, which is what the Bible says, but I know people aren't going to like. And, and somebody uh, came up to me and said, I wish somebody would have told me that when I was 22. And I just think that's a picture of why this is so important. Um, some of us just didn't know better. Um, some of us are longing for healing. I'm not naive about this. This is the world that we live in where sexual promiscuity is the norm and it affects the church just like it affects the rest of the culture. We're not talking about this to shame anyone. We're talking about this to offer redemption. To say to Jesus, I'm sorry. Fill me with your love. Help me to turn from my infidelity. The solution isn't to laugh at the Bible and say that's old-fashioned. The solution is to repent. Everyone sins, but not everybody is free. And the lie that our culture tells and the devil would love for us to believe is that um, when God places certain restrictions uh, you know, on our sexuality and against, you know, other parts of our lives. This isn't only about sex. The lie that the culture would have us believe is that God is um, restricting us from something that is good and healthy, and we're going to miss out if we don't get to participate. But it's a lie. It's a lie. Uh, God loves you. And uh, like a parent looking at a child and saying, because I love you, I want better things for you. God says it's never too late to repent. Your sin is only fatal if you, rep if you fail to repent, if you refuse to repent. Jesus is a big enough Savior to handle all that you bring to him. Thirdly, third takeaway is that Jesus redefines success in this world. We'll finish with this. Um, verses 25 and following, Jesus says this. He says, only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with an iron rod, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. If you are faithful, Jesus says, I will give you the morning star. Um, I think this is the first time Jesus says this in the book of Revelation, but it's a theme that comes up over and over again as we're going you're going to see as we, as we make our way through Revelation this year, um, that Jesus' constant encouragement to his people is just to hold on. And it's, it's kind of depressing until you get used to the idea 
But what he's calling you is not to win. What he's calling you to do is just to be faithful, to keep holding on, to keep holding on. And that's profoundly encouraging as I approach middle age and discover that life is really hard. Jesus is saying, just keep holding on. (coughs) Success looks different than you thought it would. Jesus says that success for Christians is simply remaining faithful. Or my friend Mike Kangian uh, said it like this. He said, the future belongs to those who hold on to Jesus. Um, You're not going to get everything that you want in life. I I hope that's not the first time you've had that realization. (laughs) You're not going to get everything you want in life. That's just a reality. But we have a choice. And the choice is this. Will I then keep agitating my hungers? Or will I choose to believe that what Jesus said is good for me is actually good for me? And trust him. And walk with him. And follow him. Verses 26 and 27 um, he talks about ruling with an iron rod. He's not talking about, you know, a savagely like destroying our enemies with glee. It's a, it's, it's a reference to the guilds in the city, but it's also a reference to Psalm 2, which finishes with these words. Um, it says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in Jesus. Jesus says, hold on to the end, and I will give you the morning star. The morning star was the symbol of of victory and triumph. And yet the the, the fascinating and beautiful thing is that at the end of the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, I think it's chapter 22, verse 8, I'm not sure, um, Jesus refers to himself as the morning star. And so what he's saying is, hold on to the end, and your reward is Jesus himself. You don't have to win. You don't have to be successful. Success is simply holding on. And you will receive Jesus himself. This last week, I hope this isn't too uh, much of a kind of insider, uh, I don't know, speak, but um, this, this last week, uh, you may have seen this. I don't know, that the, the United Methodist Church... Um, uh, had a, had a, it's na- a national con- or annual global conference where the United Methodist Church, not you know, our tradition, but certainly brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and the big issue that they were going to uh, discuss and vote on at their conference this week is whether they would uh, continue to uphold the Bible's sexual ethic or if they would just basically go the shifting way that our culture is going and give up 2,000 plus years of biblical teaching and um, it's, it's probably going to divide the United Methodist Church. Um, but the divide was largely between uh, United Methodists in the U.S. who want to advance a more progressive agenda and United Methodists in Africa who do not want to do that, who want to remain faithful to what the Bible says. And one of the concerns that kept coming up is, well, if, if this happens... Um, you know, the, the Americans are the one with all the money. And, um, and the Africans depend on that money. And um, I read a, a speech that an, one of the African pastors, he's a, he's a pastor in Liberia, uh, gave during this conference this last week. And um, 
he said, he said, don't you, don't you Americans think that you need to enlighten us? And he said, if you think this is just about money, he said, we're much better than you are at getting by without a lot of money. <laughs> Zing. And then he closed with these words. He said, friends, not long ago, my country was ravaged by a terrible civil war, and then we faced the outbreak of the Ebola virus. We are keenly familiar with hardship and sorrow. But Jesus has led us through every trial. So nothing that happens over the next few days in this conference will deter us from following him and him alone. We will persevere in the race before us. We will remain steadfast and faithful. And someday, we will wear the victor's crown of glory with our King Jesus. Would you come and walk with us in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Amen. And so, that's beautiful. But I think what's even more beautiful is to think about a pastor in Liberia, which was a, is a country that was founded as a colony for former slaves, is now teaching the American church what faithfulness really looks like. That is staggering. He could have been talking to the church in Thyatira. He could have been speaking to us. Jesus is the only one that will really satisfy what you're looking for. And life in this world will be hard, so keep holding on. And keep coming back and keep telling us, telling each other the story of the beauty that redemption is real, because that's what will really change us. Let's pray together. Oh Jesus, we give you thanks and praise that you uh, speak to us. You don't leave us in our ignorance. You don't... Uh, shame us in our sin, but you offer healing, you offer forgiveness, you offer uh, cleansing. And God, we just want to experience more of that in our lives. We want to live in a, uh, in a world where, um, and in a city where, and in neighborhoods where we know our neighbors and enjoy being with them without wondering if uh, without our shame driving us apart. God, we want to be a part of a church uh, that experiences your grace and is a part of your work of redemption in this world. And so, God, uh, would you help us to hold on to Jesus, to remain faithful to him? When our friends, when our culture around us um, squeeze us into compromise. Would you help us to hold on to Jesus? We pray in his name. Amen.